What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Charlie Quirk, born in Perth, Australia, currently residing at Google in San Francisco as a strategist. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. We are going to talk about a little thing you put out onto the internet titled 50 Insights from Hollywood, where you have used, in a fun way, I have to say, Hollywood movies and Venn diagrams to practice having insights. Now, the funny thing is when you put stuff on the internet, sometimes you attract funny responses. What's been the most baffling response to this deck so far before we actually go into some of your favorite insights from Hollywood? Well, I think overall it's been almost unequivocally positive, which is super fun and and just quite satisfying. Uh, You know, it's a bit of a labor of love. I've been stewing on this for the last sort of couple of years and I thought, bit of time with quarantine, why not put pen to paper? So I did. But uh, the only, I guess, I wouldn't say pushback, but there was concern around a, a little Easter egg joke I made in there about the Karate Kid. Someone made another comment about whether something was a legitimate insight, which that's fine. I mean, anything you put out there, you're going to attract some degree of um, scrutiny and criticism. But on the whole, I think it was pretty much positive. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I think as Australians, we don't understand the impact of uh, Paul Hogan and Crocodile Dundee on the strategy and account planning community because we all know that his famous phrase, that's not a knife, this is a knife, is basically how most planners operate when they're like, that's not an insight, this is an insight. Am I right? <laughs> I think that's true. I, I think there is the perception that one needs to justify their existence as a planner slash strategist. So it could be the most watertight, beautiful, inspiring, creatively liberating insight in the world, but someone will go, yeah, that's nice, but what about this? Uh, Can you plus it up just a hair, bro? And and I think that's fine, but it's also, I I think it often speaks to a little bit of insecurity if someone's taking out too fine a tooth comb to sort of shit on your idea. Yeah, and then especially with a deck like this where it's essentially you enjoying your world and how you think and you're, you're practicing it and expressing as opposed to like, here is the ultimate way to do insights and I know everything. I didn't get that vibe from it, but every now and then someone will attach that vibe to an author and attack them because of it, which uh, is not to say that you have had a lot of that, but I, I just saw a few things popping up on my Twitter earlier today. That's what I'm talking about. Um, so obviously a lot of people have done some pretty amazing analyses of movies, lots of great books. What did you think you could add to the world of movies and planning by doing this in the first place? I think so often people don't realize a movie is really about something because of the subject nature it's about. Like, for example, my, my mother or, you know, just a, a friend of mine, there might be a girl, might not be interested in, in baseball. And so they might not see Moneyball. Or they might not be interested in, uh, like a lot of people, not interested in the porn business, so they might not see Boogie Nights. But those movies are really about something else. And I, I think Moneyball, it, you know, over the years I've sort of said this to people, I'm like, yeah, you have to see it because it's, it's based on the most, in my opinion, the most important business book of all time. But so many people wouldn't actually read it just because they think, oh, I'm not interested in the subject matter. But it's like, it's actually about something else. And that's what I sort of wanted to, I guess, illuminate with this deck to say that there is a deeper structural meaning behind a lot of these films. And, you know, there's no one or one or right way to analyze these, but I thought it would be interesting just to have a deep dive and to try and illuminate some of that truth that so often goes unspoken. 
Yeah, the, the interesting thing about something like a movie or even a novel, if you want to examine it, is often there is a relatively clearly stated theme and potentially insight, but there could also be unstated themes that appear just because they're often pieces of art, not just business things trying to make money. And then as the viewer of them, you get to connect these things to your life to work out what they mean to you as a personal insight. So I think all the things that humans create in the world are worth analyzing and practicing if you want to get good at strategy. You don't have to disconnect yourself from enjoying movies because I've got like 20 nonfiction books to read this year. Like enjoy it all. They're all there for you to explore the the human condition and good books and good movies are treasure troves of psychological insight. No, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think just on that, and, and I guess one of the, the real uh, the real inspiration for this deck was the fact that there are countless numbers of quote-unquote books for strategists lists. And I actually had that in the upfront at one point in this deck. But there are very few kind of movies, like book uh, movies for strategists lists. And I thought, well, maybe this is not strictly that, but it is sort of using movies as a medium to reverse engineer an insight. And, and so often I think there is that deeply entrenched, you know, cultural sort of, uh, expectation of strategists need to read, you know, we need to read all these books and which I do. But, and, and I love, you know, I try and have a set number of quota every year that I try and hit. But at the same time, I watch a ton more movies. I analyze them with my friends. I, you know, I tweet about them. I, I, sh- I sh- you know, recommend them to people. That, and I know these, this person will very easily see this movie versus buying some obscure book that I'm reading. So I just think as a medium, it's largely untapped as a as a source of insight, certainly in the strategy community. Awesome. And then you break down a few of the concepts that are more often heard in the movie world, such as a log line, to then describe how to potentially practice having or analyzing insights that could be or might not be useful in strategy. They could also just be a bit of fun. Uh, what's a log line? A logline is a synopsis of the story to sell studios and, and Jaws, uh, Jaws is often held up as sort of the iconic one, which was when a killer shark unleashes chaos on a beach community, it's up to a local sheriff, a marine biologist and an old seafarer to hunt the beast down. This is essentially the, the pitch line of what the movie is going to be, uh, where people can sort of get excited and also get the encapsulation of what that story is. Uh, before the, the movie actually gets made. So it, it has to work hard. It has to be um, economical and concise and also, I guess, illuminating. So I think a logline so, log and a tagline are often seen as the, the main items behind the movie, but I thought the insight was missing really. Yeah, and the thing is that the way that a logline gets used in screenwriting is different to how it often would get used in an agency, where in an agency, a logline might have other language like an idea statement or an ideologue. But in the screenwriting world, from what I understand, and this Jaws example is is perfect because there's usually the introduction within a sentence of a an antagonist, a protagonist, a mission that the protagonist is trying to undertake and possibly possibly an obstacle or a sense of the high stakes involved. Whereas a logline in, uh, in advertising, if you're explaining an idea, it's usually a, a sentence. So I guess the old spice guy, the idea in him that you could campaign in many ways is that he's the man, and I know this is public facing language as well, but it doesn't mean that the public facing language makes the logline 
wrong, but essentially he's, he's the man you wish your man smelled like. That's the idea of him, right? But that's a different, sure. that's a different structure, but definitely useful techniques. Um, the idea of a premise is also, I think, quite useful in strategy or in creative ideas as well, because sometimes, um, like at Leo Burnett Sydney, and I know I cite a few campaigns all the time, but they're, they just pop up. But there was a campaign at Leo Burnett Sydney for McDonald's called the Name It Burger. And the thought there, I'll call it a thought versus idea, was to get Australia to name a new burger. And then uh, one of the creative teams came up with a reason for it. And the premise was that there was this fictitious burger naming legend who was about to retire and they needed to replace him. And so this character was created. So examples of log lines and premises being used in different ways within our industry, but totally valid tools to explore. That's just a long winded way of saying, I like this stuff, Charlie. I like it. I like it a lot. Sure. No, I can tell. I appreciate it. Put it in the ballroom. yeah, exactly. Oh, my dad, my dad will like that one. Uh, and all time. and uh, let's, uh, so you have a Venn diagram. Congratulations. And uh, why don't you explain <laughs> us, explain to us this Venn diagram and how you've used it as a, I know there's a reverence and cheekiness, but also uh, probably a sense of joy and seriousness in what you've, what you've put together here. But what's the Venn diagram that you've used to break down movies to play with our insights? Sure. Well, just in full transparency, I, I kind of backed into it myself. I, I had an Evernote, Evernote folder on my phone where I was just trying to come up with these insights over the last couple of years. And then I thought, well, what actually is it? I mean, if I had to, I guess, reverse engineer this mousetrap, what are the ingredients that go into synthesizing this insight? And, you know, if you look at, and, and when I was writing these, when I was searching for them, I noticed I kept looking up, you know, themes of Midnight in Paris, you know, themes of District 9. So, so there's the, the thematic component, which, you know, the theme, that, which is the main subject or idea of, of the film. So that is on one side the theme and then there's the nuts and bolts of the story like what's it actually about what's the narrative what are the narrative components what's the plot so story happens on that other side of the of the venn diagram and so i guess at the nexus of theme and story is this in, insight which i've defined as a fresh and new perspective the film inspires now rivers of ink in the strategy community have been spilled over what the most eloquent definition of an insight is and that's fine and we'll, we can debate that for another hundred years more but i just thought here you know it's, it's pretty close to the moral of the story like what is unique about this what is the unique takeaway that this film inspires and and, and i guess one of the unusual things about this deck when you know i've shared it with people you know friends and family so many of them they'll, they'll have this knee-jerk reaction to say oh you're missing all these classics i'm like you're missing the point chief it, it's not about the caliber of the movie it's about that fresh and new perspective that the film inspires. So, so that's really how I landed at it. Totally. And, and also you're following your own subjective energy and the things that have captivated you might not captivate someone else and totally, totally valid. Uh, I like to define a word, but I'd never do it in a dogmatic way. And the thing is that as soon as you get into these definitions, for me, words like insight, idea and moral are actually really similar depending on the individual. Uh, but from a mechanics point of view, super similar. Uh, but you know what? It would take me at least seven and a half minutes to explain it, so I'm not going to. Let's get into some of the examples here. Let's go through 10 of them, okay? Where does your eye want to take us? Well, 
Straight out of the gate, I think Moneyball is an interesting one, and I, I recommend this one far and wide. Just be, and, and especially, I don't know if you've seen the film, but there was a great scene about identifying the problem that the Billy Bean, who is played by Brad Pitt, sits there and with a bunch of career baseball scouts and and realizes, well, has a bit of an epiphany that none of them are actually useful in terms of how they can analyze talent, and it's around identifying the problem and and. The genius of Billy Bean and, and the Oakland A's in, in this in this film is the fact that he realizes that following the established wisdom is a dead end. That mm-hmm. you know, with a finite amount of money that to have, you're going to be outgunned by the larger players who have a bigger pot of money. So the only way you can compete with them is to reinvent a new flavor of advantage and that that is what he's done with, you know, the birth of sabermetrics and um, basically understanding, you know, the genesis and the, the thinking of Bill James who invented this new analysis system that it's only by deviating from that conventional path that you might give, give yourself a fighter's chance if you're an underdog. And, you know, th- this is an old story. I mean, it's biblical, it's David and Goliath, but, you know, it, the same, the same could be said about David and Goliath, actually. He's deviated from an expected path to unlock some advantage, and I think that's mm-hmm. exactly what he's done here. So the insight stated here is advantage can be unlocked by diverting from established wisdom. What was the wisdom he searched for? How did he do that? A, a new rubric of assessing players and their productive output by basically eschewing traditional means of looking at things like batting average, looking at things of the physicality of the player. Um, he was the first one to realise that uh, on-base percentage or OPS, on-base plus slugging, was actually a better way of assessing how many runs a team will score in the year as re- rather than conventional wisdom like, you know, again, the physicality of the player or, or something like batting average, which is very one-dimensional. So he said, screw that, screw what everyone is actually expecting to look for in a player and let's, let's go a different path. And as a result, um, he found some, he unearthed some real gems. Yeah, so essentially his, his insight, where an insight is an idea that gets you to change how you behave, gets you to change your life, is we're looking at the wrong numbers. And then there's probably a style of number that he started to look at that you could uh, throw into that as an insight, but uh, totally valid. I've not watched it. You know why? I don't really like baseball. Sure. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Sorry, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was follow through. You, you set it up earlier and I spiked the ball to mix my sports metaphor. That was really bad. You, you, you did. I forgot you're Australian for a hot minute there. Yeah, I do. I've dropped in Crocodile Dundee and the castle. Sorry. Sorry. You know oh, Jesus. Do, sorry. Do you know how often I get to do that? Like once in every 250 interviews. That's um, fair. All right. So that's Moneyball. What's the next one that uh, draws you into it? I, I think... I just want to go to American History X. Uh, you know, it's a well, it's a well-known film, and it's a, it's a very tragic film. And you see the transformation of of a neo-Nazi, realize the futility of his anger, and and for the longest time he sort of internalized it and personalized it, and um, you know had had this as his sort of personal Sisyphean task that he has to overcome, but he hasn't realized the collateral damage of that path that he has taken. Mm-hmm. If you look at the damage to, uh, you know, his mother, you know, her relationships, his, his brother and the path that his brother goes upon, it, it is really tragic. And even though you see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the way he has evolved, 
the fact that despite his personal evolution, there are ramifications of the choices that he's made to, to, to his life thus far mm-hmm. and that it's not just something that can hurt him. In fact, that it, it's responsible for the, the way his brother gets gunned down in the street. So the insight here that I had was personal anger has a ripple effect and can hurt the ones you love. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me not to see words and just play with them. So I, I'm going to throw words out, but it's it's sure. not to one-up them. It's just like I, I, when I hear this and that was that, it's definitely a very powerful movie, I was thinking there is an epiphany that some of us never have or some of us have it is that like anger hurts and we feel hurt and we feel angry. So we're going to act out on that anger and oh gosh, I just hurt somebody else because of that. And I didn't even mean to, but I was so caught up in being angry. Sure. That there was going to be that collateral damage. Um, the reason that I'm kind of being a bit meta is that sometimes what I find, I don't know if you do this, but I find myself role-playing. I'll take on a particular voice and, and put, try to place myself in an empathetic way in someone's head and just riff and see what words pop out because sometimes I find that in doing that, it's a technique that might get me through maybe a mental block or maybe I'm looking at a lot of information. I'm like, hang on, let's, let me just pretend I'm a character in my head and see what pops out. Do you, find you, do you have any little practical techniques like that too? I mean, there's definitely... I guess a degree of role playing that I take on, you know, sort of in the form of daydreaming, I try and empathize and put myself in, in people's shoes, whether it's a movie character on, on TV or, or a customer as it relates to a project I'm working on. Uh, so, so I think it's super helpful uh, because I think when you are parroting your own preconceptions, you're probably not saying anything new or unexpected or, or creatively liberating. And I, and I think putting yourself in another pair of shoes, I think is the best way to sort of unlock some of that perhaps oblique energy. Mm. So there, there is a part of planning that is slightly like acting by assuming these characters, even if only temporarily and even if only in your head. And I, and I guess it makes it very appropriate that we're talking about movies while talking about exploring empathy because that's what actors have to do. They have to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. So I don't know relevance that's my point third one no doubt the third, one? It, it, the third one i think i want to jump into to whiplash and i think that that's a movie that so many people have not seen i mean it, it was critically acclaimed it you know it was an academy award-winning film and you know wonderful performances but something that's inconvenient um that i guess rubs against people's sort of you know moral sensibilities is the fact that you know, there is this abusive teacher. He's about as unequivocally a bad guy as you're going to get in a film, perhaps outside of Darth Vader. Like there is nothing really redeeming about him and his pursuit of excellence. Like he is emotionally abusive. He's physically abusive to his protege, who's a jazz drummer. And the jazz drummer sort of buys into the the process. He says, okay, in order for this to happen, I have to you know, have a shoe my relationship with my girlfriend and my father, become a bit of a self-absorbed jerk, which he does in pursuit of this excellence. And then like it goes haywire and the teacher really gets abusive and the teacher gets fired. And, and, but he still finds a way to, to, to grind up against the gears of his protege. And it's not until the end where the protege says, screw this, I'm just going for it anyway. And he gets to a place where he creates this absolutely transcendent performance that would not have otherwise happened if he had a more human, generous, polite, kind and caring teacher. Mm. 
So I, there's a real inconvenient truth about this movie that it is often, it's not really discussed. You often hear it in terms of when people revere Steve Jobs or other, you know, even like Kobe, like Steve Jobs and Kobe or Jordan. They were, they were kind of assholes. And the unfortunate part about being an asshole is sometimes it is an asshole that can inspire this transcendence. And, and, and that's really the, the insight from this movie, if you ask me. It's that transcendence can lie on the, abu- the other side of abusive mentoring. You can't recommend abusive mentoring. It's actually illegal. This is not an endorsement of abusive mentoring. But on the very odd occasion it can inspire something utterly wonderful. And, mm. and I think that's what's happened in this movie. Yeah, the tagline's telling for this one, suffering is the soul of greatness. And what's kind of cool is like part of, part of that movie, uh, which it's, I, I think it's definitely worth watching. Um, I think it takes place a few blocks from where I live and my daughter's actually in one of those buildings five days a week. Uh, so it had a sort of particular uh, personal connection to us and what in our lives here. I think that's correct from memory. But there's there's different ways you could interpret that and different language, different style of language you could use. For example, you know, trauma. Uh, trauma can make us, but it doesn't have to hold us hostage. That could be another way to interpret this. Or, or maybe this is too trite, but the idea like crisis can help you create. So, you know, you've got two strategy folk here who've watched the same movie, who are looking at the same explanation, and there are subtly different ways to in, in, interpret it. And the, the point is for the strategist to do that interpretation. That's kind of the fun part of the job and to find your own style of language within this. Uh, yeah, and just, just on that, uh, like as I was writing this, and I didn't realize that that was the tagline for the film as I was, as I was writing it, I was going, I actually don't think I can top that. Like uh, it, it's, it's, it's one of those rare occasions where the tagline is the insight of the movie because it, that is really the essence of the story and I think crisis can help you create or, you know, just the, the other ways that you expressed it I think are also super relevant. Yeah, they're totally fine. And the other thing is that there can be a battle I don't, I don't know if you found this in the, within a strategist who's trying to write something similar to suffering as the soul of greatness, but then that might go too far based on the creatives they're working with. And maybe the creatives will write a line that is the insight. And then the strategist is like, hang on, but that's my job. Where do I fit? And there has to be this constant recalibration based on the project and the team that you're working with, because the aim is to do effective work. It's not always about you having the authorship of the thing. Uh, so that's, is that a battle that you've had to deal with? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I, I totally agree with that. And I've, I guess I, I, I come at it as somewhat of a frustrated creative myself. Like I'm not one of those people that walk into the room and is precious around my ideas. I very, if someone comes up with a better idea, I'm the first one to go, oh, actually, let's go with that. Because I'm like, if you do cling to them so, so tightly, it just reeks of insecurity. It also reeks of a degree of selfishness that you want your own ego in some of these pixels that you put on a page to supersede the creative output. And guess what? If you work in the, in, in the creative services industry, clients aren't buying sexy briefs. They're buying sexy work. So if you realize that you've got to operate as a strategist in service to sexy work, then I think you earn the trust of the creatives and they view you as a partner rather than a nuisance. Mm. Oh, got to operate with so much nuance in, so, in, in every interaction, don't we? What's, uh, what's number, where are we at? Four. Sure. Uh, jumping into Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is an underrated film. It has the late, great George Carlin in it, as well as Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. But why this is beautiful, it's, it's one of those 
quote-unquote fun for the whole family movies. You have these two ne'er-do-wells who want to start a band in high school and they clearly aren't interested in academics and they're clearly goofing off and are up to no good and what have you and then they're, they're visited from the future by a, in a time machine, in a phone booth and they're taken back to learn history throughout different parts of iconic scenes and figures in history. And for me, the key takeaway is the fact that the deep immersion is the most effective way to learn. If you want to understand something, you have to operate with the practitioners in that craft. You have to know the literature. You have to go back to first principles of what makes something what it is. So becoming immersed in a subject matter is the most efficient, easy and sticky way to to absorb that information. So that was really the insight that deep immersion is the most effective way to learn. That's funny. I've, I've watched that a couple of times and I've never thought about what I needed to learn from that movie. And the thing is that that movie, in hearing your explanation of it, is essentially Socrates. <laughs> and is Socrates yeah. in that movie? Yeah, yeah, because they call him Socrates. Oh my God, that's so hilarious. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it now and because like the Socratic method is essentially to ask questions and then do stuff and find answers. But I, I, oh my God, it's even in the movie. He's in the movie and I would never have connected those two. That's hilarious. I just, and I, I didn't realize this as a kid, but in order to impress him, they quote uh, Days of Our Lives, like Sands Through the Hourglass. And, he, and Socrates himself, his mind is blown. So I just thought that was a nice little wrinkle that I didn't get <laughs> until I was an adult watching it. Well, I should watch that with my kids and see how they react to it. Uh, awesome. Uh, number five. Uh, so I want to go with Boogie Nights and again I touched on this earlier um, this is really Paul Thomas Anderson's coming of age movie he'd made a couple of films before this but he's essentially the most acclaimed filmmaker of his generation I think he's around 50 and he made this when he was I believe 26, 27 so it's a remarkable film all star cast has aged incredibly well but I feel like a lot of people haven't seen it because they, they don't take it seriously. They're like, well, that's a San Fernando porn movie? No, you've got to be joking. Get out of town. But what I, what I find remarkable about this is that Dirk Diggler, who's the, the Mark, Wahlberg, Mark Wahlberg plays Dirk Diggler, he's discovered by Burt Reynolds, uh, the character, and Jack Horner, and then he goes off and becomes a sensation because of largely because of a certain skill or uh, appendage that he has. And then he sort of starts believing his own bullshit and he, he becomes arrogant and he thinks uh, that arrogance becomes misplaced confidence and he goes off and dabbles in a range of, you know, music, drug dealing. It's basically a, a series of bad decisions based on his own heightened sense of confidence and self-importance. And it's only by hitting rock bottom that he realizes he has to reconnect, which what made him great in the first place. Like he's not a particularly talented guy. He has one talent. He's got to stay on that straight and narrow. And for me, the insight then was that the world unravels quickly when you ignore your limitations. Mm. It's the, I've never really thought about Boogie Nights. It really is a deeply American movie. The themes in there that other countries, other societies might not, feel would attract a lot of those societies to watching something like this. Obviously, there's a sense of personal liberty and freedom to do what you like, even though there's obviously a very strict uh, religious history within America as well. But the, the sense of liberty and freedom, that's exposed through this. Making money, capitalism, make money how you need to, how you want to, that's exposed in this. Uh, one special thing is about the individual being an important individual, which I think is one of the most 
American ideas, even though it comes from the Judeo-Christian tradition, from what I understand. Sorry, I'm being a nerd. Um, the okay. next one is uh, specialization. America loves a specialist. And then uh, I guess maybe in some ways, this is a, uh, a warning about diversification. Don't over-diversify. Uh, so I don't know why I was rambling through that, but I had not looked at boogie nights like this before. And guess what? That's what insights make you do. They get you to think about the world in ways you haven't looked at it before. And then you're like, oh my God, now I can't unsee that. Now I'm like, boogie nights is really the private anthem of America. That's my point. Yeah. No, look, I, I love your analysis of it. And just when you were talking, talking about being a, a, a guest against being a multi-hyphenate. I think there's a Russian proverb that is um, chase two rabbits, catch neither. And that if you spread your focus and your abilities too thin, you know, you get the, become the prototypical jack of all trades, master of none. And I think, you know, if you don't really have any demonstrable or meaningful ability outside of one thing, just some physical gift that you were given, then I think it's perhaps better just to, to stay in your lane rather than try and be pretty average at a, at a range of different disciplines. So I, that, that's where the thinking from the, for that one came from. Oh my gosh, I've been chasing 10 rabbits every day for decades now. No wonder I'm no good at anything. Oh my gosh. Get out of town. It's all, a, in the same, it's all in the same ballpark, so I think you're good. <laughs> I don't know. There's a, there's a similar phrase I like, which I picked up from a colleague, which is, uh, he who rushes waits twice. Similar. Hmm. Number two, it's in there, two rabbits waiting twice, I'm just saying. Um, oh my God, I'm blown away by Boogie Nights again. And, and the funny thing is I've not watched it since it came out and maybe if I watch it now, it'll be like, oh, this is totally just about America. Like it, it obviously is, but in a way that I understand having lived here now in a potentially deeper way. Number six. Uh, I'm going to go with Goodwill Hunting. Um, this is, look, if someone had a gun in my head, this might be my favourite movie of all time and I, I, I'm sort of loathe to say that just because I feel like it's not in that same, the, the, it's not on the Mount Rushmore of great American films, but it is so incredibly watchable. And it's hard to relate to it because you see someone who's clearly born a genius and who is stuck in his own, uh, I guess, a prison of his own making, you know, like there are certain things that he cannot shake from an abusive relationship with various different foster parents from his sort of, un, I guess, underachieving friends and some of their abilities and, uh, you know, loyalties and what have you and habits. And it wasn't until he sort of was made to feel vulnerable by a very sort of empathetic counsellor in the form of the, the Robin Williams character, which when he basically called him out on his bullshit, he said, look, you're that scene when they're sitting on the park bench, he said, you know, you can recite all these great works of art to me, but do you know what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel? Do you know what it, the, the feeling of vulnerability when you're truly in love with someone? And for me, that was sort of that like turnkey moment where he becomes sort of a know-it-all, brash, cocky 21-year-old to a more enlightened person that's going to you know, make the most of their abilities in life. So it's not, a, it's not necessarily about knowledge. It's what you do with it. And it's how knowledge can change your worldview. So the insight for me was love and experience are the key to enlightenment. Mm. What's interesting about the way you explain it is that there's something very much about the strategist or planner's journey that is about knowing things and information to having experienced them 
having felt them and then knowing them in a different way that I think is part of the hero's journey of a planner. Not, not to be too meta and you know, corny about it. I, I, think, I think it's kind of true. The tagline is beautiful and that some people can never believe in themselves until someone believes in them. Uh, that style of writing, you could put that on a creative brief and it would work potentially as, as an insight as well. Uh, some people might think it's too much like a, an aphorism. I hope that's the correct word, but too general and you know, like a fridge magnet type of thing. But at the same time, maybe it could work but that's that's quite quite interesting and the way that matt damon acts out in this movie is and a lot of a lot of us do this is like i don't i'm not used to people believing in me so i'm going to act in a way that justifies that in such a bad way that i don't deserve being believed in and then eventually someone puts up with that believes in you and you're like okay i'm done with that i'm now going to believe in myself there's there's definitely a little hero's journey in there that a lot of people would go through especially if they're doing thinking work and that probably does connect to imposter syndrome and a lot of the research around that um so we've got six here charlie i want to point out something and i don't mean this to in a a too cheeky way we've we've got six with very strong white male leads can we we mix it up sure uh sure Let's let's go with Million Dollar Baby. Oh, I watched this again a couple of weeks ago. Cool. I just think this is this is such a tragic film in many respects, and you know it's an acclaimed film. It's you know a Clint Eastwood masterpiece, and it has Hilary Swank as I'm going to say a mature age boxer. I think she's around thirty, so that's considered pretty late. And she's from a pretty impoverished background, and she decides she wants to become a boxer and, and does so. Uh, she has a natural aptitude for it. She really breaks through and becomes essentially world champ, as I, as I recall. And then it all comes tumbling down very quickly because in a very cheap shot, dirty move, she becomes essentially a, um, she becomes a quadriplegic, I believe. So she cannot do the one thing that she aspired to, the one thing that was responsible for bringing her wealth and what have you. And, and then the, the, the part of the controversy of the movie is, uh, Clint Eastwood, who's a father figure as well as coach, euthanizes her in jail because she's had this uh, her one gift taken away and she begs him to do it. And people view it as so tragic and so sad, but there, there's this, a quote in the movie where she says, don't, you know, don't feel bad, and I'm paraphrasing here, don't feel bad, most people die with a, a broom in their hand or a, a wrench in their hand under a car, um, you know, not to diminish those jobs, but basically doing certain jobs that they were not, they, they didn't get their shot to be a contender in life. And she literally gets her shot. She literally makes it, becomes world champ, and then something tragic happens. And it's like, well, what can you do about that? You can, uh, the, the fact that she had the opportunity and took advantage of it, I think is um, very uplifting as much as the ending is not ideal. So the insight here is that the world can be tragically unfair, but it's more tolerable when you've given life your best shot. Mm. Yeah, she's persistent. I mean, she just keeps turning up. And, and, and even when she's uh, knocked up in a really bad way, uh, sorry, that was maybe not the right phrase, but it's not inaccurate either. I didn't mean it as in getting pregnant. But um, when she's like badly damaged and her family turns up to the hospital to get her to change her will, but they, I think they're at Disneyland or something, or Universal Studios somewhere, and they only visited her two or three days after they were in town, and it's deeply sad. And um, one thing that came to mind as you were explaining this is we talked about acting and role-playing as a way to talk yourself into an insight. A cliche appeared in my mind, and I think cliches are useful to explore. And the, the cliche is an obvious one, and it's punny with this, in that she wanted to go out swinging, right? And mm. what, what I think cliches are useful for is like if something comes to mind and it's, and it's a cliche, when you're writing, the aim is to not use cliches, but you could explore them and go, okay, 
but is there something about the way she went out swinging which is new, novel, or, or not very common that I can play with it? And it just pushes you to write something a little bit more specific. The tagline here probably doesn't deserve to appear in a creative brief. It's like beyond his silence, there is a past. Beyond her dreams, there is a feeling. Beyond hope, there is a memory. Beyond their journey, there is a love. Like that I don't think is useful strategy writing compared to some of the other taglines we've mentioned before, but a beautiful movie and uh, the idea that you can bear suffering having given life your best shot totally makes sense. Sure. Number eight. I want to go with The Wizard of Oz with this one and, you know, I don't know how many, if there's anyone who hasn't seen this movie, guess what, if you haven't, you need to because it's an iconic film and it is remarkable how well it holds up. And the fact that, you, you know, you see Dorothy swept away in a tornado, uh, you know, taking to this fictional wizard land of Oz, she, you know, meets the lion, the scarecrow, the tin man, who all have, I guess, personal hang-ups of their own, you know. They think don't have a heart, don't have a brain, don't have courage, these kinds of things. And then when they get to the wondrous, you know, land of Oz to meet the wizard, they realise it's, it's actually just this sort of old kind of, pathetic man that's the wizard behind the curtain that he's manufactured this persona uh and and i guess this facade of omnipotence and mightiness when he's just like anyone else and for me the the insight here is the fact that our perception of reality as well as our abilities are often illusions they are what we make them to be but it doesn't mean they're accurate it doesn't mean they're they're right and and just not to give too much of a shout out to to the great Michael Jordan because there's a documentary on him right now, but I believe he used some of this language in his Hall of Fame speech, which was, you know, our, our limits are merely illusions mm-hmm. if you ever doubt yourself. So mm-hmm. I, I just thought it's, I don't know how I linked Michael Jordan to the Wizard of Oz, but it, it felt, I didn't want to feel like I was uh, plagiarising it from the, the great Michael Jordan. Mm. Are there certain illusions that you've held in life that you now no longer hold? Um, sure. I think certainly as it relates to my own abilities to do certain things, my own attitudes towards, you know, the role that education can play in the formation of anyone. I have a 10 year old child and I see some absolutely spectacular abilities in her that I'm, you know, really seeking to nourish. And, you know, I certainly, you know, I I grew up in a, a large family you know, I'm one of five kids and certainly, you know, I know the Australian tall poppy syndrome to you, there are certain things that I would not have even remotely entertained growing up, which bring me the, the greatest sense of joy now, but we're not really perceived as, you know, worthwhile endeavours, you know, fruitful pursuits, interesting, um, legitimate sort of career choices, but I've kind of made a career out of it and, and I, I sort of wish I took mm-hmm. it more seriously growing up, mm-hmm. but I, I did spend all my time playing sport and wanting to be a professional multi rules player. My career was tragically cut short by a lack of ability. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it sounds like it didn't even start. <laughs> yeah, precisely, right? So, so I, I, I really wish I did nourish and, and I guess foster certain, certain aptitudes in myself before I reach adulthood. Dude, I got to tell you, I had to move to America and then also spend a bit of time around, I guess, philosophy from Europe to to realize that that's that's probably going to be my main moral from being in America. You're just making it up. And this movie is a perfect example of it. You're just making it up. So what do you want to make up? What are you going to do? What is that reality you want to create? Because this entire country 
and all the pockets of it have been built on people just creating their own realities. Sometimes it's through religion, sometimes it's through capitalism, sometimes it's through uh, imagination and creativity, all these things. But that's been one of the things I've really taken to heart about, about being there or about being here. Sometimes it's difficult to feel that when you're within a corporate structure, but I think of all the places in the world, it is here. And that is the American dream. The American dreams, yeah, maybe it's about a house <laughs> and cars and stuff like that. But I, I think it's about, okay, if you're going to be an individual, what kind of individual do you want to be? And, and how is that individual going to relate to the community that you're in? Because you're not ever just an individual individual. <laughs> anyway. Totally. Uh, but t- I really relate to that. Is, is that um, do you feel that more here? Yeah, I think uh, my brother, he, he lives in Rhode Island. He goes to, he's doing a PhD. Like, he's, a, he's a good example. Like, he's a lawyer. Um, and he decided, you know what, I, I wanted to become a philosophy PhD. Mm. Uh, so he was at Pittsburgh for a couple of years at Carnegie Mellon. He transferred to Brown and, and he actually had a good point. Uh, he said, there's more of a tolerance of weirdos in the US. Like there are some kooks and nuts, but they're often sort of fostered as being uh, worthwhile, uh, more so than sort of, I guess, you know, towing the line and uh, around expectations of what people do in Australia. And there's a really good quote. I, I want to make sure I get this in. I think his name is John Michael Hausen, that uh, famous Aussie film critic that was on Burt Newton for years. He said, like, he lived in the US for 30 years and he said something like, they said, what do you prefer, the US or Australia? And he says, look, I like both places. But pe- when people ask me what's the difference, I say, if Walt Disney grew up in Australia, he would have ended up being a house painter. And that's always really struck me as quite profound because you can say, you can imagine Walt as a young man going, I want to make moving pictures and with a mouse that can talk and all these, these you know, I want to make a theme park and films. And all his friends would have said, come on, Walt, you know, the old tall poppy syndrome in Australia. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you're getting too big for your boots. Why don't you get a proper job? Why don't you go off and come and hang out with your, at the pub with your mates after work like normal people do? Don't like, you know, entertain these grand illusions. So I, that's always sort of jumped out totally. to me as um, the part of the distinction in the cultures. Totally. I mean, look, I grew up with that banter, but it is, and, and, and there's a weird part of the Australian myth, and I know we're talking very broadly here, but there's a weird part of the Australian myth that we're irreverent, that we don't take things seriously. And yet, especially as a, I identify as a, as a male, but as, especially as like a, a male growing up in Australia, you don't have a very big sandbox. Uh, there can be a sense of physicality around that sandbox so that if you stick out or if you put your toe over the edge of the sandbox, I'm not saying there's a punch coming for you, but it might be, and it might come from someone who's got one of those shit-eating grins that Australians do so well. But it's, it, it is, you know, and I, you know, I've been down in Florida a couple of times and you go to somewhere like a Disney World or Universal Studios or even think about Hollywood, for example, on the West Coast and, and Disneyland, you're like, holy crap, someone stood here and said, I'm buying this and I'm going to do whatever I can do with it. And you're like, whoa, how, how, how did that idea enter that person's head? And then what's exciting is like, oh, what am I going to do that's a bit like that? It's, it's incredible, right? I, I feel that here more than anywhere and it's, it's something that I love. I, I struggle with the corporate culture here, but the other ideas that are in this country, they do, a lot of them blow me away. Let's do number nine. What did a parasite, a uh, remarkable film that has just popped, was, you know, won the Academy Award for best film, the first foreign film to do so, uh, as well as best director. And, and it's quite remarkable. And, and my brother, shout out to Jack, called it the greatest socialist movie of all time. 
and I think there is there's layers of complexity as it relates to class, as it relates to you know class envy, as it relates to what constitutes a real crime. Is it, it's are certain things warranted versus other things, and the fact that a family that can become ingratiated within a, a rich family and then bring them down from the inside through no real malice, just sort of by accident and have no real problem with doing so just because the desperation of, of their own circumstances made them feel less bad about doing these crimes mm. was, was pretty remarkable. So, so the insight for me is that poverty can make good people do bad things. This is interesting for me. So I've watched Korean film for a couple of decades now. JSA and Shiri, Shiri were essentially two of my early... Oh, uh, Chingu, friend. I love that movie. And what's interesting is that like, South Korea is more of a collectivist culture than, uh, well, definitely than America. And yet there's been a tearing apart of the family structure there. So traditionally, the oldest son was supposed to take care of the family. They would often get the inheritance exclusively, often, not always. And yet what's been happening in recent years is a, a, lot, of the, a lot of Korean grandparents are living below the poverty line, like a huge number of them. So there, there's something that's happening in Korea that's, uh, that's falling apart. And then the ultra wealthy there are often, not always, but often connected to what they call the Chebol, which is, I think, the four main companies that own everything, Hyundai, LG, Samsung, and not Lotte. There's another one, Daewoo, maybe? Uh, Hyundai, they, Hyundai. Hyundai, yeah. Uh, you know, they own the hotels, uh, they make free, like you go there and you're like, holy crap, these brands are everywhere. They own the cities and they do deals with North Korea and build airport. Like, I don't know what they're doing. They're, they're doing everything. And so this, this movie comes out of that, that there is a fracturing of Korean society. And what is amazing to me is I watched this and then I looked it up and a big theme in it is the gap between rich and poor and he shoots it so that in every scene, the rich and poor people, there's some visual line. It could be a window or the corner of a room or a light that is, is literally in every single scene in between the rich and the poor people so that they're separate. Have you, have you seen the video highlights of that? I have. There's a one by Lessons from the Screenplay and another by the Nerd Writer, which sort of talks about this in detail, and it, it's beautiful direction, remarkable. It's mm. oh, good. It's good. All right, let's do let's do one more. I've totally talked too much in this, but I, I do it every now and then when I get none. No problem at all. So I just want to go with Legally Blonde. Um, this is, you know, it's not as a film. It's not my cup of tea. It's it's a it's a nice story. It's a positive story. Reese Witherspoon is wonderful in it. But basically, the brass tacks of it was the fact that she's dating a guy, and at the start of the movie, they essentially break up because he, you know, in a pretty pretty direct way, says you're not really smart enough for me, and that she had spent her whole life identifying uh, by as, as the equivalent of what, what she looks like. It's like that's all I am. I have to, you know, check all these boxes and being a sort of polite blonde ingenue mm -hmm. and then she realized that as you know that if her boyfriend can get into harvard then so can she so she works to do it and gets in there um, basically outguns him intellectually throughout the movie and you know the, the triumph being that in rediscovering her attitude towards her own abilities she come you know becomes what she's truly capable of so it is not you know, intelligence is, is very malleable, if you ask me, and I think it's it, largely it's attitude. So the insight for me was that intelligence is attitude because that's what helped her turn her, her life around academically.
Mm. This was also playing in my apartment recently. And I, I think there's something powerful that a lot of people have to go through, which is, uh, to me, another insight connected to this one, which is that I'm not what you tell me I am. And, you know, we develop these social personas to fit in to our families and to seek validation initially. And sometimes they don't serve us 20, 30 years into that social persona. And so there's something very Jungian about this movie, actually, because she starts to individuate, become the human that she's supposed to be. And she does it by discarding her social persona. Am I right, Charlie Quirk? Yeah. No, no, I, I think so. And just as you were talking then, reminded me of the, uh, you know, the famous poem, it's Invictus, you know, uh, man, but it's sort of mostly associated with Mandela these days. I'm, I don't know the author, so forgive me for that. But the final lines being, um, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. And the fact that external forces may classify us a certain way or categorize us a certain way, but that doesn't mean that it's true or it should be or that we are disempowered to change that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why just when you were talking about that, it really reminded me of that and that's totally part of the story here as well. Mm. All right, I've got one final question and I, I know you've given me answers to this question, but I want to see if something new pops up. Sure. Feel free to take a couple of seconds to think of an answer. Th this question is a question that I believe is one of the fastest ways to try to understand an insight. And it's this, and I want to hear your answer to it. The question is this, what is something you've learned about yourself or the world around you in the past year or two that has led you to change your life? For me, it would be that physical exercise is more important mentally for me than it is physically it helps me concentrate it puts me in a better mood it inspires me to be more ambitious it does a range of mental i guess pruning that i did not often associate it with growing up and associating it with a physical endeavor Totally, totally. And, you know, what for people who are hoping to have a career like yours, what I'd encourage them to listen to as they're hearing you is there's a certain sense of confession, I feel, in most insights. And yet most creative mm -hmm. briefs don't contain that energy, possibly because people think they have to be academic. They think they have to use big words. They have to sound capital P professional. But most insights feel like these delicate hunches that we think Based on the research we've done, this is what it's about. And in thinking that this is what it's about, I need to change my life. You know, so where's the best place for people to find you on the internet and where can they find this deck? Sure. Uh, Charlie-Quirk.com is my personal website. They can find this deck there. I'm also launching uh, with a friend. We have a few episodes in the can. Uh, my own podcast, which is at anchor.fm slash the furious curious so that will be popping uh in the next few weeks awesome uh, i'm very jealous of your last name you've got one of those last names that could lend itself to so many company names it's you know just you could set up a whole research company just called quirk and you well, got thank, thanks you for it <laughs> you get the, the name of a, a hollywood character well thanks i appreciate it I'll, I'll shout out to my parents well done i was gonna say it because you had nothing to do with it so you know you probably should, <laughs> you, you can thank me on behalf of them but you know no it's very cool uh charlie uh love going through this exercise with you and uh seeing the deck may you make many more of them and best wishes with the podcast they are deeply fun and rewarding things to do if you like doing deeply fun and rewarding things in life thanks mark it's been a real honor and a privilege Peace.